Welcome inside the war room. Ryan Ray here. As always, today we have on another another wonderful episode for you with a gentleman. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to call him a friend, so I'll call him an acquaintance. Hopefully one day he'll let me call him his friend, uh, Gregory Zuckerman, uh, making a second appearance on Inside the War Room. I got to know him many moons ago through his first book, The Frackers, which I will link to in the show notes. But first... Let's thank our sponsor, which is Audible. I listen to Greg's book on Audible. I listen to a lot of books on Audible. You should, too. I'll drop a link in the show notes. It's Ryan Ray Sr. That's SR for senior. RyanRaySr.com slash Audible. Get your free trial. Pick up Greg's books. Or, listen, we have on authors all the time. Go ahead. Start hoarding your books on Audible just like I do. That's how you get through all this stuff. <laughs> you got to read it. You got to listen to it. You got to find your spots. Okay. Gregory Zuckerman is a special writer at the Wall Street Journal, he's an investigative reporter who writes about various interesting, interesting, investing in business topics. He is the author of A Shot to Save the World, which is what we're talking about today, the inside story of the life or death race for COVID-19 vaccination, published by Penguin Random House Portfolio Division in October 2021. He's also authored The Man Who Solved the Market. Uh, I mentioned the frackers already. He's got a book he did with his boys, Rise Above, How 11 Athletes Overcome cha- Overcame Challenges in Their Youth, uh, and, of course, a long litany of awards and all kinds of stuff. I'll put all this in the show notes, which you can check out at com. Okay. Now, before we get in the show, Greg and I had a wonderful conversation. So I hope you enjoyed this because he was nice enough to come on, talk about a controversial subject, no borders or barriers or uh, restrictions were asked. And so I really appreciate that. And I want to say that uh, publicly to him uh, and to anyone listening. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Gregory Zuckerman. Well, I almost went back to your last appearance on this podcast and pulled the clip of you saying, I will never again write a book. I will never again do this. <laughs> yeah, oh. reminds me of that. Yeah, <laughs> and you, you, I think you said, I think the story was something to the effect of you walked out of your basement and you told your wife you're never doing it again. Of course, um, I'm speaking to the one, the only Gregory Zuckerman with the Wall Street Journal and author of A Shot to Save the World. It's good to have you back on the program. How are you doing, sir? Great to be back again. Good seeing you. So, is are you saying that again? Before we go any further. Is that your current status that you're never again writing another book? Uh, yes, I'm emotionally drained and scarred, and I can't continue doing another book, and yet I'm, I'm sure I probably will do one again. <laughs> okay, we look forward to talking to you next year for your new your new book. <laughs> <laughs> Not so <soon>. Not so <laughs> Okay. Well, this was extenuating circumstance uh, where I, I, I decided to jump on this thing. That's exactly right. That's what I was about to go to. So um, I think the last time we talked was last – uh, July, you came on, uh, you had written the book, uh, the man who solved the market, uh, or, uh, and, um, you had released that. And so, um, of course COVID has happened if you heard, obviously. And <laughs> so that inspired you to, to write a book when in the process of the pandemic, did you say, okay, this is a story worth writing a book about, um, or was there something that you, 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 you were writing about the wall street journal? What made you write this book? Yes. So, right. I finished uh, my last book and I was promoting it and I was flying around 
a little bit in January 2020 when we heard this talk about this virus. And I was kind of complacent and blase, like I guess a lot of us were. And over the next few months, obviously, it became real trouble. And I was locked down in my basement in New Jersey and working for the journal there. And I started hearing about this company, Moderna. Moderna is at the lead in this vaccine chase. And I never heard of this company. I talked to other people. They weren't really familiar with the company. And, and those people that knew something about Moderna were skeptical about Moderna. They, they were very unlikely candidates to be leading the chase for this vaccine hunt. And, and that's what got me excited because I, I love that kind of theme, the unlikely hero, unlikely characters. And, and, and that's what intrigued me. I didn't decide right then to do a book, but I decided to, to track it, to keep an eye, fi- figure out who these scientists were, not, not just at Moderna, but who were the leading scientists. And it, it, that theme just really attracted me. And so in the, what's impressive about this book from my perspective was um, a lot of the book is devoted towards the history of these vaccines and, and all the ups and downs. And so that took an enormous amount of research, obviously, unless you're just like a vaccine expert. <laughs> so it sounds like you're, you're not, uh, you weren't. And so you had to spend hours, I guess, conducting interviews and researching on this stuff. Yeah, Ryan, it, w- it was really hard. I'm no, va- forget vaccine expert. I'm not a science uh, person. I probably got B minuses at best in school in my science classes biology, I probably barely passed. And here I was saying, I'm going to do a book about science and, and biology. And my kids told me not to. And um, I knew what I was up against. I hired a, a, a tutor, a local a local young woman who was a PhD candidate, and um, would just ask her the dumbest questions. And we would have these sessions and just I would just pick her brain and, and, and learn. And, and it just basically, I was learning all the stuff that I had either forgotten or never got to in school. And it was it was really hard. It was really very hard. So um, I threw myself into learning about the history of these approaches and the people behind them. And that's sort of how I come at it usually and how I came at it with this one. Well, who, who, who are the people? How did we get where we are? What was the story behind the story? Well, you sound like you're you're a podcast host now. You're just asking the you're asking the dumb questions to the smart people. <laughs> I, can, I can resonate with that. That's what I do for a living. <laughs> yeah, it's my daily day. OK. Yeah. So the, the thing that caught me off guard, I guess, was is that this was, um, you know, again, from a non-science person, you know, you hear about the vaccines, mRNA, all these terms, like whatever. Um, I, I, I knew it was, I guess, some kind of relatively new, but I didn't realize that, and, and like most things, and this is what I've learned, the older I get, the older I get, the, the things that I realized that I thought were new at the time weren't really as new as I thought they were. Like when you look at the cell phone, when it came out, when I when we got a cell phone versus when the cell phones actually were being distributed, very much the same thing here. Um, and this was a a battle, if you will, for A, the, the use case, is it, is it possible? And then the funding and all that goes on in this industry, which was I thought was quite fascinating to, to hear that story. And you also captured the emotional roller coaster of the, of the of not only the CEOs, but also of the kind of, I don't know, the average worker, but a lot of the workers in these firms. And that, I thought that was really well done. Um, how, when you write your books, because the Frackers is how I first found you, and you, you did a great job there. How do you go around framing those stories? Because you do such a good job of that. So I'm glad you picked up on that, because that's really one of my goals. Um, most people, most writers and others focus on the CEO or that runs a company. And how the company achieves something big. And it's always my contention that, yeah, those CEOs often are interesting, but I kind of want to drill down, no, no, no pun intended, and 
who who is the geologist that is responsible for some big breakthrough? Um, and in this case, who's the researcher? Who's the scientist? And how do they do it? And those people have not been written about, and I don't think they get enough credit in, in both of Rutgers and in, in this one as well. So that it was my is my thesis that there must have been some breakthroughs going on in the labs of these of these um, scientific institutions, be it uh, the companies or the government places that, that hasn't been written about. And that's sort of like I'm a I'm a treasure. A hunter. I'm hunting for for my treasure is the untold story, the the breakthrough that that hasn't been written about. And yeah, I, I kind of frankly want to give these people credit. There are people in my book that you've read about who have changed the world, literally have changed the world, and yet have never been written about. And even people within the world of science don't give them enough credit. So when when you talk to people about Moderna, like government scientists, academic scientists. People are very dismissive of the actual scientific work at places like Moderna. Well, they're they're for profit, and y- yeah, then then the Moderna guys figured out delivery. Delivery is a sort of you, you you've got this great vaccine, but how do you actually get it into the cells where it needs to go? It's got to get past the immune system. Immune system is on its on the lookout to to ward this thing off. How do you, how do you avoid the immune system when you need to? And again, people on the outside are like, yeah, yeah. Then then they figured it well. Then they figure it out. It sounds uh, it's probably harder than that, right? So who who are those people? And often these companies don't want it known how it happened, how what the tr- real story was. Who were the the researchers, the, the the chemists that I write about, Carrie Benandato, um, Eric Wong, just sort of a mid level scientist who was the one who said, guys, it is not working here with drugs. I'm talking about at Moderna. We got to pivot to vaccines, and it was a huge risk, and it was an interesting argument in his part. So I, I want to shed light. And that was what I did with Frackers too. I want to shed light on those mid-level types of advances that really changed the world. So one of the things that I thought about going through this book, um, so you have the CEOs. And so um, just for the sake of argument, obviously the CEO is going to make a lot more money potentially versus your average worker. And some of the average workers, whatever their reasons are for working at these companies, you know, they had some pretty rough times, some pretty hostile environments at times, and, and you do a good job covering that. What inspires from obviously very anecdotal evidence, but what inspires the mid-level workers to kind of push through some of these things? Because listening to the book, I'm like, God, like I don't know if I would have wanted to keep working on some of these projects because it seems like you're either up against a deadline, the boss is too hard, you're failing too much. So what did you find that inspires these mid-level workers, for lack of a better term, to keep persevering? It's a good question. And you're talking about sort of these mid-level researchers who I encountered and I write about. They're scientists all over the country and, and frankly, all over the world. And they're deep in these labs and these basements. And w- what I find just so striking is I, I do what I do. I'm a writer. I work for the Wall Street Journal. I write books. I, at most, I spend a few months on an article for the journal. I spend a few years on a book. Most of my stuff is in a few days and it's out and it's done. And I like turning things around. And, and I have so much respect for these researchers, these scientists who spend years, years on their approaches, making incremental advances at, at, at most, hoping to make incremental advances. And, and that kind of patience and that persistence and that um, resilience and that ability to just sort of not take no for an answer. And even though the conventional wisdom says mRNA is not going to work, this messenger RNA approach, it, it, don't even waste your time on it. And yet the people I write about decide to ignore the conventional wisdom. Yeah, so you ask, what, why do they do it? Um, I think it's intellectual curiosity. I think there's a mission. They want to help. They do want to 
save lives. There's some also motivation to be rich and famous, which is fine too. I, I'm a capitalist, so that's fine. Um, as long as the end goal is, is beneficial, then, then I'm a big supporter of that. Um, yeah, they're motivated by just going into that lab and if they can make incremental advance today versus yesterday, then that makes them happy. So I have a lot of admiration for those guys. Yeah, and you mentioned the logistics um, of, you know, kind of people say, hey, you know, you can't do this and they do it. You can't do this. You can't do it. I remember we covered a story last year on the vaccination distribution and they were projecting, I can't remember, like 15 or 20 years to really get the world vaccinated. And as of today, uh, an estimated 43 percent, roughly 42 percent of the world's been vaccinated. So obviously there's a, if, you know, there's a long way to go to, if, if everyone is to get vaccinated. But compared to where the early estimations were, they really outpaced themselves, it seems. Not just that, but early on, and, and I write it in my book, the experts were saying, don't expect a, a vaccine within the year. That, that's really too much to expect. And, and we did it in 330 days from the sequencing to the uh, authorization of the first vaccine. Uh, yes, I think, frankly, we don't appreciate the enormity of this of this success. And it is modern science's greatest success. We're just too close to it. It's too politicized. Um, I think maybe we're just conditioned in, in today, unfortunately, not to be grateful and, and appreciative and, and not to um, realize the enormity of this achievement. It, it, it's just remarkable. So yeah, the rollout has been better than people had feared. And just the development of this vaccine has been faster and, and just more effective. These vaccines are just remarkable uh, creations. So I think we do need to be a little more appreciative of, of, of these achievements. Yeah. And so one of the things, so I was born in 85. So you talking in the book about the kind of the HIV. I, I remember, um, I don't know if I remember Max, Magic Johnson's announcement or not, but I remember knowing that he was kind of the most famous person I'd heard of that was, um, I, so I, I, the very early memories of that, cause I'd been, you know, five, six, seven, eight, whatever, when that was kind of in the nineties. Um, but that seems listening to your book, was that, would you say the most recent politicized type of viral thing that we've encountered in the U S um, so you have COVID and then going back with HIV be the most recent one, at least in my lifetime, that's the only thing I could think of. And I don't know how well, it, it was. It's, um, so young. In terms of a pandemic, in terms of something that affected uh, the world, Perhaps it's interesting you mentioned about HIV. So I'm, I come at these books as an outsider and there's advantages and there's disadvantages. But I think net net there is an advantage because I'm writing for the outsider, not writing for the scientists, although they're part of my audience and, and all my books. You know, the Frackers was for geologists as well. But um, I'm also trying to introduce to the world um, this the, these accomplishments and explain how they were done. And um and, and there's um, and, and, and there are all of these struggles. It's all about struggles, all about tension. And with HIV, to me as an outsider, again, I kept hearing about, well, we back in HIV, we learned this and we were applying it to COVID-19. We learned this from HIV and, and the vaccine work we did on HIV. And I'm saying to myself, wait, guys, hasn't that been an utter failure? We have spent decades trying to find a vaccine for to, to stop AIDS and we failed. I, I'm naive about this stuff, but I don't remember reading about any of it, guys. And they were like, no, 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 Greg, there are no failures when it comes to science. We, we learned so much along the way. And the story of HIV, the more I dug into it, the more fascinating and more relevant it was. We don't get the J&J vaccine without the failures and the lessons from HIV. We don't get the Oxford 
uh, AstraZeneca vaccine. We don't get maybe some of these other ones too. We learned about the immune system. We learned so much how to conduct large trials. So um, that is why I go back to HIV and there's a lot of relevance, a lot of parallels to, to and, and, and I think the historical concept, con context is pretty important. So you talk about learning. This is uh, this is from the um, you're the now the tutor. I'm now you. <laughs> okay, we're, so yeah, that's one thing. I, I just help maybe uh, conceptualize that a, a little better. So when you do an HIV trial, um, you might work. You might learn that this doesn't work for HIV. So you've learned that. How does that then generally work? Because it would seem like HIV in this case is a unique virus, and you you have a unique target. So how would that? How does that help trickle out to other viruses? Well, I think you've hinted at it. So um, I'll just give your, your audience a little bit of a sense. A vaccine is an education. Basically, you're, you're teaching the body's immune system about some disease, some pathogen, some virus, and you want to teach them in some way. So with these vaccines, the ones that we have inside of us, um, we're basically teaching the, uh, the, the immune system to recognize a protein. What's that protein? It's the spike protein. So basically, you, with both mRNA vaccine, that's the Pfizer and Moderna one, and the adenovirus ones, that's the J&J &J and the AstraZeneca, we're, we're sending a, a, just a message, a genetic message to the body. Hey, go create this protein, and, and it's a spike protein so that the immune system is educated about it. And with HIV, that, that was the approach too. They were trying to educate the immune system about a certain HIV, a, a certain protein. Um, and when you say, so in terms of the lessons, yeah, so maybe with HIV, it hasn't worked. Um, and for a lot of reasons, HIV is just unbelievably hard virus to deal with. And it's different from one person to the next. It, it commandeers our immune system. It's always changing. It's a, it's ridiculously hard virus for these vaccine specialists, but um, they said to themselves, "Well, okay, it hasn't worked for HIV, but maybe these approaches that we've honed for HIV, we've developed for HIV, we can apply it to an easier uh, pathogen." And they did for things like Zika and MERS, and, and then they turned their attention to, to COVID. So yes, um, HIV, we haven't found a vaccine yet, but some of those methods. Um, were applicable to easier viruses, as it were. One of the things in the book you mentioned was, um, I don't remember who said it, you, you will, but something about vaccines aren't sexy or vaccines don't have the peel or vaccines don't make money. There was someone kind of bemoaning vaccine, the vaccine business. Has COVID-19 changed the opinion of the scientific community around vaccines and vaccine distribution, apart from not the COVID vaccine, but for other vaccines? I think it may have, and it's a really good point. So. What jumped out at me is the fact that it wasn't the vaccine giants who saved the day. You would have thought it'd be Merck and Sanofi and GSK. I mean, Merck makes the uh, MMR vaccine that we all give to our kids, the measles, mumps, and rubella. And, and frankly, it reminds me so much of the frackers because who, who should have found all that oil and gas in America? It should have been Chevron. It should have been BP. It should have been Exxon. Exxon's sitting on the Barnett there. And it wasn't. And the same kind of thing. It should have been Merck. Merck's like Exxon kind of thing. It, Merck should have been the one to save the day, and they didn't. And it was like these unlikely characters and companies, Biontech in Germany. I mean, what the heck? Their minds, Germany. They are a cancer company. They don't even do it. Infectious diseases. What the heck? And it's a little bit like uh, what's the comparison? So Aubrey McClendon is a little bit like Stefan Bensel. Uh, you know, he's a showman. He's a salesman. Right. You don't know if you really trust him or not. He's able to get 
money from every kind of investor possible, but you're not sure if you really trust him. And yet he's charismatic. There are a lot of parallels there. So yeah, when you when you bring up the, um, the vaccine business, right. The reason why the Merck instead of being GSK, I would argue didn't really have home runs when it came to COVID is I'm not sure the heart was in it because vaccine business until the last year wasn't seen as you said sexy and very profitable and it wasn't because you could spend years working on a vaccine it may not work even if it works you give it to someone once a year or once a lifetime maybe as opposed to a drug so that's i think it took that's why it was biontech and this group in oxford and um and and moderna they're the ones who and this little company novavax i think is going to prove important they're the one they saved the day because others maybe didn't have their heart in it there, there's times in in life, and you'll see this where the, the 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 kind of the conventional wisdom is shaken. Is this one of those times where uh, the scientific community um, kind of said, you know what, we've done things this way? So you you have the big versus small that you've just touched on, but you also lightly touched on the cancer diagnosis, the, the cancer prescription medicine versus the vaccine. Is this one of those times where we step back and reevaluate re- and says, well, if you have a certain level of qualification, maybe we shouldn't drill down to be a super specialist. Maybe your your skills transfer around a little bit more, or has it always been the case? And I'm just not aware of it because if I, if you said, hey, if you just asked Ryan Ray, can you work on a cancer drug and a vaccine? I would have said yes. But then if you told me, well, companies really kind of specialize on one thing or the other, I'd be like, oh, well, maybe you can't. So is that being reevaluated? Is that something that maybe I don't fully understand? How would you unpack that dynamic? So it's a good question. I don't think that's being reevaluated. And then just for people that haven't read the book, uh, this company, Biontech, and Uger Sahin, the head of Biontech in Germany, they spent literally years and years and years working on cancer vaccines. Nothing to do with this infectious diseases, um, viruses, et cetera. But along the way, they developed this capability to create um, messenger RNA, uh, mRNA um, vaccines. And again, they didn't, it hadn't worked. They hadn't created anything that was approved or authorized or anything, no drugs, no vaccines, but they had an approach and they turned on a dime in early January, 2020. And they said, hey, let's see if we can apply this approach. So to your question, I, I don't think there's been a rethinking in terms of, well, vaccine companies can do other kinds of things or, or cancer companies can do other kinds of vice versa. I do think that the less, one of the lessons from the, my book, but also from this period is that you, you, you can't count, don't count out the, the dreamer, the, the dreamer who says, I'm gonna work on this mRNA approach when people tell me it's not gonna work. Or like Novavax, I'm very inspired by this company, Novavax. They came into 2020 with, with almost no money left. They were gonna close down. They were going to go bankrupt. Employees were setting their resumes out. The stock was at like $3 a share. And they had a series of failures over the years. Name the, the virus or the disease they tried to create a vaccine for it, and it didn't work. And people like me on the outside are dismissive of these dreamers, the people that are in their labs saying, we think we have a really good approach here. We haven't been able to prove it yet, but trust us. And people like me maybe aren't, I know I, I can speak for myself. I, I'm always skeptical of those kind of companies. Yeah, right. Show me when you actually have something, you're trading at $3 a share. But maybe one of the lessons is the Greg Zuckerman's of the world shouldn't be so dismissive. It's not to say we all should be buying stocks of you know companies at $3 a share, but I don't know, don't be so dismissive of the dreamers. And that's kind of been a theme of my whole writing, right? So same thing with Shell. You, you know that world. Shale was always this thing. Yeah, right. We all know there's a lot of oil and gas in Shale, but 
Don't waste your time on it. mRNA is like shale. Yeah, right. mRNA, you send a message to the body to create a protein and you, you make the body into its own factory vac vaccine or a drug factory. Yeah, right. Tell us when, when you've had some success. Well, don't dismiss those dreamers, maybe. So this is a non-COVID stance. I've always felt that um, individuals uh, should have a little bit more say-so in their ability to determine when they take a cancer drug. So like if someone has a new experimental cancer drug and it's very early stage, as long as it's being disclosed what's in it, what you know about it, and you're not committing fraud, um, I think we should loosen the reins on some of those government regulations there. We loosened the reins for the COVID-19 vaccination. To your point, we got the vaccine in whatever it was, 300 something days. Is this a trend that we as a society should reevaluate and go, listen, if we can make a vaccine for COVID-19 in whatever it was, 300 something days, maybe we should loosen the reins, fully disclose a little bit more. Of course, if you commit fraud, that's 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 a criminal offense, in my opinion. Um, and, and let people take something uh, maybe a little bit more experimental for some other diseases that we haven't been able to cure yet or prevent? Um, it's a good question. I'm not a huge believer in that. I mean, you can point to like the Dallas Buyers Club and when there's a disease like AIDS where we have no solutions. Sure, if so long as you're, as long as you're fully disclosing and let people try certain things. M my fear is that we already have such hesitancy when it comes to vaccines and everything's so politicized. Um, what if someone had taken one of these vaccines a little bit too early, even a few months too early, we had loosened the reins in that regard and had died. Um, wouldn't that have made people who are already kind of fearful and wary even more so, and they probably wouldn't have, once it was approved and, and authorized or and all that, they may, may not have wanted to take these vaccines. So I, I get the, the, the reason, but, but I, I do want to emphasize for your audience these vaccines were not rushed. So yes, they did them quickly, but it wasn't like they cut corners. It wasn't like the FDA um, loosened the reins in, in that regard. What we did do was do things simultaneously for the first time ever. And what I mean by that is we developed and we tested and we manufactured vaccines simultaneously at the same time, which is unheard of because wh why would you spend billions and billions of dollars making a vaccine when it's not even approved yet and we don't know it's going to work it's just a waste of your money and time and the reason why we did it this time is we had the money to do so between operation warp speed between investors writing checks just the the, the need to do so to, to save this economy turn it around so we did things in an unprecedented way but i wouldn't say it was an unsafe way and, and in terms of loosening the rain and paper it makes sense you know if you're a libertarian and i know uh, your sentiments to, to some extent. Um, I, I get the impulse and, and I share that impulse. I just worry everything's so politicized that um, you have one false move, one blow up. So one, God forbid, someone really um, is, is, is harmed by a, an approach. And maybe we, we don't, we're not allowed to go on that approach ever again. Um, you know, you look at like uh, hallucinogenics, I, I kind of find that whole world interesting where people are coming back to it and maybe there's some value there even marijuana too and i don't know enough about either of these two areas but i i know that things um get, get tainted and some of that research got tainted and maybe there's some value that but it took us decades to come back to it i wouldn't want that to happen to to something like a vaccine yes obviously i'm a libertarian i've said that on the podcast before so my, the audience knows that quite quite i usually bring it up for the guests but since we know each other a little bit uh mm -hmm. i didn't say that um 
and th- but that that I think that's part of the, the also what I would submit to you is that you talk about um, and you talk about in the book Operation Warp Speed and and so you know the politic the, the politicized nature is is well right now you know well you can find quotes from both sides so I'm not taking a side here you can find bo- quotes from both sides pro against the vaccine depending on who was in office when they were in office that's what makes it politicized is the people in power they drive the political narrative and so they really push it to their base and try to you know sway their base this way or this way. So like when I toured the country last year, um, I was asking, I went from, uh, I started Milwaukee, went all the way over down to DC. And I asked people in every state, what about the vaccine? Right or left? None of them were like, oh man, the vaccine's coming, it's going to save us. None of them. And that's that was like the weeks before leading up to the election. Um, that's right, left, independent, didn't care. They, they just like, ah, oh, yeah, I don't know, we'll see. And I think part of that, was because you had, you know, the right, which wasn't really bought into the vaccine, right? They were kind of, because that's not really their thing. The left, which was saying, well, if it comes out under Trump and Trump says this, then we won't approve it. And so you have this thing to where there's a lot of top-down pressure under the current system that makes it even more political. I'm not saying it would be apolitical in my, my world, but it seems that that's part of the problem that you're touching on is the current construct. So I agree to some extent there's blame that needs to be apportioned to both um political parties and, and both leaders. I mean, the confounding thing, I'd love to hear your own take on this, is why Trump didn't say, we, I created these vaccines, the greatest American creation in history. Everyone should get one, get two, get three. I'm saving lives. I've, I've saved the world. And he could, there's an argument for that. Mm-hmm. You know, Operation Warp Speed was really helpful. And he should get credit, some, at least some credit for that. And there's he could have had an argument under my administration. We've had the most impressive scientific achievement in, in modern science, modern times, and, and wrapped himself around these vaccines. Instead, of, he, t- he wouldn't even tell people when he got vaccinated. It's confounding to me. And see, and, and that goes to my point. And Biden had his own issues where he, yeah, they raised questions about the vaccine before the election, et cetera. But I think that's all a reflection of the base. Why didn't why didn't Trump? I'm going to answer my own question. Why didn't um, Donald Trump say that about the vaccines? Because I think he got a sense. He's all just he goes on these. He used to go you know town to town and get these speeches, and he tried things out. He would throw things mm-hmm. out, and when it worked, um, and people reacted, then he went with them. I mean, that's that's how policy was made, just by sort of throwing out to the base. And I think it's all a reflection of of where we are today and, and the people. And frankly. My book is about individualism and um, innovation and all these executives told me America is, is the reason why we have these vaccines. Either they were developed here or um, they were backed here, the investors are here. So there's a lot to be proud of about America. But the, the, the other side of that coin about the individualism is we've way too much individualism, meaning that everyone thinks um, it was DIY kind of kind of um, country now. Well, my brother-in-law saw something on YouTube from a guy from Facebook, so I'm not going to take the vaccine that my internist of two decades is telling me is pretty safe. And um, we are so self-confident, which leads to really good things, but it also leads to really bad things where we ignore um, expert opinion. And um, it's a reflection of kind of where, where we are. It's kind of sad. And I don't know if you remember, but I leave off my book with um, um, some points by the late um, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who mm-hmm. talks about everything self today, self-realization, self-actualization, self, 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 as opposed to we. And um, the self stuff helps 
is a great part of America, and I'm proud of that. And um, I'm a big capitalist, and I work for the Wall Street Journal, but it, it's led to some bad stuff too. Where maybe we've gone too far, where we ignore what the counsel we're getting from from experts, because I know better than everybody else. No, and I think that's a, I think it's a fair thing to to contemplate. And I will. Uh, one of the things I've always appreciated about your work, and I've always told people that I've. When I've always, I always promote your book, The Frackers, because I know a lot of people in the oil gas industry. And I've always, when I read that, I, could, I because I was in the world and I, I lived through those stories you were telling, I knew you told a fair account. And I've always appreciated your work because you always um, do a fair account of things. Even when I find me and you aren't in agreements, I think you provide interesting and thoughtful context to things. Um, it, it, in this question about the individualism versus the collective and, you know, and, and, you know, group or, or whatever, it, it, it goes back to, I think, more of the, more of the political thing. And to your point about Trump, I think uh, a few months ago, he was at some campaign and he's like, hey, guys, go out and get the vaccine. They boot him. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> they boot yeah. him. And so yeah. <laughs> he, yeah. he did paint himself in a corner. And and he, you know, and uh, we had on Ryan Grudowski a, a, while, a while back and he was talking about kind of how the, the White House was trying to message things. And, and it was really interesting to hear that perspective. And um, so I think you're you're right. And that was part of ultimately his, his downfall in the end there. Um, to your point about, you know, this trusting the experts. And this is where I think the, the the hard thing that Americans have to think about today. So you do have the people who have a friend who, um, see a cousin or an uncle on YouTube. Okay. So that, that's a problem. I think we all agree there, but I can tell you, so me and my family had COVID, right? So we went to me and my wife went to our doctor. He gave us one solution. Um, my kids had a different doctor. They went, that doctor made, d- didn't like the solution our doctor gave because she asked, mm-hmm. you know, what we did, we went and got the monoclonal antibodies pumped into our body and felt great because <laughs> I didn't care what either one of them said because I heard that worked really well. <laughs> so that's how I handled it. <laughs> but, I'm glad it worked. I'm glad it worked. <laughs> <laughs> so so ha- help, help me yeah. with what you're saying because there's two experts, two doctors, and even they're not agreeing on the best course of treatment. And, and I think there's a lot of Americans right now who hear what you're saying and if they're being honest and fair, they would go, okay, concede your point. I want to be charitable here. How do you deal with those things? Because there, there are experts that disagree. It's a fair point. It's a good point. And um, I love debating this stuff with people that don't necessarily see eye to eye with me. Um, I give speeches now about my book, and I love it when there are vaccine-hesitant people in the audience, and there sometimes are. And listen, there are two types of them. They're the people that say, oh, Bill Gates put a chip in in, in my brain and all that kind yeah. of stuff, you know, that crazy stuff. But there are also a lot of people that are just sort of wary and they're like, well, Greg, you just said 10 years was the average for a vaccine. And you're telling me I should be okay. I, I should be comfortable taking one after 330 days. And um, those people, you know, they're reasonable and um, wary for good reason. And to your point, and, and, and then I, with them, I try to emphasize, I try to explain, well, that's kind of why I wrote this book, because it's important that people know that it wasn't just years of, of work, it was decades of work that went into these vaccines and their approaches. And that wasn't the, the goal of my book. I'm really just more a storyteller. I want to tell you how something happened. But I do think people should take away, should be reassured from, by, my, by my book. Because it was serious science by serious scientists, they're not political in any way. They, um, you can criticize them for trying to get rich and famous, maybe, I don't know, but they just want to save lives and help people. And um, that was very reassuring to me, and it should be for other people too. And, um, but to your point, I, I think it's a good one. There are um, scientists disagree with each other. 
and serious-minded scientists disagree with each other. So I guess, uh, but you're talking sort of in, in some ways nuances. You're not saying don't get vaccinated, don't take a drug, um, don't d don't believe uh, the, the experts when they're saying there's no chips inside you, that kind of thing. You're saying within reasonable, um, between reasonable scientists, there could be disagreement. And, and there is, and there is. Yeah, so here's what I would suggest to listeners. Um, and, and I'm curious your thoughts on this. One of the frustrations I've had with the, with um, the coverage from from both sides is um, we going into I don't live in this part of the country. This is news stories I saw when I was on a panel with some reporter from West Virginia um, a few months back. I pointed this out is that pre pre COVID where I'm from, we were told and I say told the, the news stories were how bad big pharma was because they're putting these drugs that were killing people. And then the, the, the media went from there to, hey, we got to trust this. And I, I think that's just a, there's, I don't know how we fix that problem, but there's, there needs to be at least a self-realization that you go from painting someone into a bad corner to painting someone into a good corner. You, you, you've kind of double-sided that. Now, these are two separate issues, but they're the same people by and large for the average consumer who doesn't know Moderna, Merck. You know, they don't know these people. It's no big pharma, right? So that's one thing I would suggest. The second thing I would suggest is it feels like, if, if you want to say Operation Warp Speed's a success and people say, well, no, people say, well, the Biden administration did this, you know, you can't just take a stance that says that, that kind of like you said earlier, well, there's credit, there's credit to both sides. There's nuance to both sides. And so we paint people into these hard positions that makes them this. And the final thing I'll say is, is that we saw stories last year um, where you had, especially in Texas where I'm at, you could see that how they were counting the COVID deaths was, it was at least questionable. It's like, well, well did this person die of COVID or did they, did they have COVID? And to ask those questions, you were demonized. And then it's like, well, okay. And so we, we've made it to where you can't have these interesting conversations like me and you are having now, which I really appreciate, by the way, um, at, online. Part of that is because you got the Bill Gates chip in my head, <laughs> kind of crazy out there, but you yeah. also can't have just the questions without feeling like you're painted into a corner. And that's to me, I think is the thing we've lost as a society is, Hey, let's have this conversation. Why do you think what you think? Why do I think what I think? Can we both agree that there's, there's kind of, kind of some crazy things that are out there on both sides of this thing. Um, I think taking the temperature down, acknowledging some of this stuff on both sides would be quite helpful because you know, what I've told people is yes, obviously the COVID numbers aren't accurate. Do they, do they have they tracked every COVID death in Brazil? Well, no, it's probably, it's, it's highly unlikely. So yes, have they tracked every vaccination death? Well, no, but are people stacked up in the hospital dying from COVID vaccines? No, they're not. Like they're, they're just not. So therefore the vaccine has to be relatively safe because there's not a lot of dead bodies from COVID vaccines or we would know it, you know? And so it's, yeah, it's, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. you, see, you make really good points. So um, to address a few of them, there is no nuance anymore and it's not, it's, it's on both sides and we demonize the other. And it's really not right. And yeah, you're right. One in my my business in particular, we kind of are very skeptical of big pharma. And then we're now telling you to trust big pharma, right? Mm -hmm. I, I think the answer is to, to to always have a little bit of of skepticism and to realize and not to paint a brush. Um, so so um, I, I've I've written my my share of skeptical or critical stories of pharmaceutical companies, but I've also gotten to know the researchers or the scientists at these companies. And it's like any other industry. So I write about finance and we're very critical of, of Wall Street, but I also know really good people that are in the world of finance. And I think it's like any other industry, frankly, um, pharma or, or oil and gas, same thing, oil and gas. 
the people on the East Coast or the West Coast and most people demonize the oil and gas industry and they don't know anybody in the oil and gas industry and they fill up at they're they're happy to fill up uh, their cars quickly and, and not think about it it's the same exact thing when you get to know them and that's um i'm really really lucky person because i have the opportunity to, to meet people in the oil and gas business in the pharma business in on wall street and you realize they're all pretty much the same 95 percent, 90 percent of them are good people just trying to feed their families and make a little progress in the world do something good uh, and there are 10% that are evildoers. There are. And, you know, guys like me write about the 10% often. And maybe yeah, that's sort of our job to root that stuff out. Yeah. But, yeah, and the key is to, to meet them. And like you said, um, and you, you also have that unique opportunity. So my favorite book, frankly, was The Frackers because I got to little towns in Oklahoma, Louisiana, North Dakota, Pennsylvania, um, Texas, and and. And it just happens that I had that opportunity, that that luck to, to be able to do so. And most people just don't. And we, we don't need each other enough. The right doesn't meet the left. We demonize each other. And uh, it's not right. And the left demonizes the right. It's just not, not healthy. Why do you think the monoclonal antibodies aren't as controversial as the vaccine? It's a great question. I wonder about that myself. Right. Or forget about that. How about that? You know, these other stuff, um, hydroxychloroquine and um in Vermersinin, whatever you pronounce that thing. I'm not, saying, I'm, yeah. I'm not saying there, um, there I know there's some people that are, I think have been helped, um, but right. Or how about you step on a nail? You step on a nail, you get a tetanus shot, right? You don't think of, you know, well, who created this tetanus shot? Didn't how many days? And did, 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 did. Mm-hmm. No, you just go get it. I don't know. And, 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 I'm not, and I'm not proposing don't think twice about drugs that are being pumped into you, but you're right when it comes to monoclonal anybody i don't know i think maybe regeneron is there i know the top people regeneron are, are big gop supporters and and trump was was saved by regeneron's product i think so maybe that was part of i'm it's a great question i've thought about that myself everything um my client i'm not doing twice about it are they tested more than that no but no there are more people that have been vaccinated than have had these monoclonal antibodies and i think monoclonal antibodies are have, have saved a lot of lives so there's good stuff there but yeah i don't know why there's more skepticism about something about vaccines something about and even going into this you know the far left has been wary about vaccines for years kennedy and and, and he's got a best-selling book about um how evil vaccines are there's something about vaccines i guess that scares people but either way you're getting the shot and you get stuff pumped into you yeah Okay. Um, let's see here. A couple of final things. You do address this in the book um, a little bit. Uh, I'm curious your thesis out a little bit more. Um, what are your current thoughts about a, let's say, first off, does it matter? But cur- current thoughts about the origins of the vaccine. That's been a big debate for some time. Um, uh, and some people in the book, you kind of address it in the, as the appendix, maybe right there at the end, you kind of come back to it some. Um, has your opinion changed? Because I don't know when you finish the editing process versus new revelations and that's even changed back. So I'm just curious, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, so I will preface this by saying I'm not an expert when it comes to the origins. I've spent some time on it, but not nearly as much as I've thrown myself into spending a year and a half on the development of these vaccines and the history and the scientists, et cetera, and the drama. Um, I do have an opinion on the origins. And one of the one surprising and even, I guess, re- I don't know, not reassuring, but it's nice to, to know that at least when it comes to origins, there's um, a disagreement on the far right, or the far, just the left, far right or left, the left and the right both agree, or some people on the left and right both agree that 
the, um, the Chinese are responsible and that it was a leak or that the Chinese created it. So it's kind of funny. It's the one thing that I've got very reasonable, moderate, left-leaning friends who are just as convinced that the Chinese are responsible as are my right-leaning uh, conservative friends. It's kind of funny. Meanwhile, I'm, as always, sort of the centrist, but moderate. I think they're both um, wrong. So yeah, so I believe, I still believe that it was, it came naturally from an animal. I, I'm, I'm not sure. I'd say I'm 90% sure. And, I, and it's mostly just from, well, it's, it's talking to virologists and people that specialize in this area. What I find fascinating is that you'll read articles, opinion pieces, often in the Wall Street Journal, and they're by doctors, somebody at Stanford, and wow, they look really prestigious and credentialed. But then you dig a little bit into it, and they're usually not virologists. They're not people that study viruses. Um, there's some other MD sometimes, and for whatever reason, they feel comfortable weighing in on this stuff. So listen, let's go through this. Did, Ch did, it, did the Chinese create this virus? And they're so confident that they could get it to spread around the world and not in China. It's a lethal virus that spreads asymptomatically. And yet in, in our own country, we're so sure it's not going to spread. That seems kind of far-fetched. So I, I think most people, and, and, and I dismiss the idea that the Chinese actually created this virus. It's not to say that the Chinese are guiltless. I mean, I write in my book about how um, the, the original, the, the scientist, the Chinese scientist who shared the sequence is an absolute hero because he knew he, he, he didn't want, they, the Chinese didn't want him to change, to share the sequence of the virus, which would save lives, but his act did. And we need to really be appreciative of, of his heroism. So I'm not in any way defending the Chinese, but I don't think they would create a lethal virus and then um, have it spread around the world and no, it wasn't spread in China. So did it spill out did a leak out by accident was there an accident in the lab it's possible but i don't know i looked at all the historic um similar viruses you have earlier coronaviruses they all came from animals you have other pathogens that jumped from animals we are in increasingly encroaching on the animal kingdom um you look at in brazil you look elsewhere it just so happens that the animals, we're encountering animals that harbor these kind of viruses more than ever. We talked about monkeys and, and those kind of mammals and other animals. And, it's, and, and frankly, it's why I think there's going to be more of these, unfortunately, uh, viruses that we're going to have to deal with. And you look at HIV, I, I just find that instructive. So there too, there was skepticism. Oh, it's the KGB they created it because they couldn't find the animal, the original animal that harbored HIV, oh, must be the CIA, must be the US Army. For years, there were suspicions. And then eventually they did find the animal host. So I think we're eventually gonna find the animal host for this virus too, but I'm not 100% sure. Yeah, I was briefed early on in the pandemic. This is probably March or April from a virologist on one of the organizations I'm affiliated with. And and I, this is the redneck talking here. So keep taking it for what's worth. But basically at that time, there was something about the, you know, the, the sequence, the code, and there's only a small percentage of the code that could have been either, uh, if it was manufactured, it'd be a very small percentage of the code that they weren't sure about at that time. And so her guess was, uh, it seemed highly unlikely because 96, three, 4% of the code, they knew exactly where it came, not, not came from, but it made sense that it came from yeah. wherever. And so that was, I was like, oh, okay. So anyways, I, I, found it, I found it an interesting debate. One of the great failures, I think, of the Trump administration during that period was, and this is a larger commentary on U.S. government was why did the, they not talk more about what the what the you know we have all these spy agencies why did they say what was going on in China you know because it kind of got over here and everyone's like oh wow this is crazy it's like well we have people all over the world that tell us 
you know, what they think is going on, not whether it's released from the lab or not, but how how bad it might be or, or whatever. But that's either here or there. Okay. A couple of final things is first off, I want to thank you. Um, you sent me a note. I don't remember what it was. And you kind of critiqued me about something I was writing. You said, Hey, Hey, you're being lazy here. So, um, and you know, I thought a lot about that since you sent that to me and I really appreciate that. And you are, I, I wish I remember what it was. I'm not going to tell you, but, <laughs> but I just want to say that I always find your stuff really well done. Um, I think you do a good job of, you know, supporting the little guy. Um, and I think you're very always receptive to, to hearing things. And so, um, as much as I like to make fun of the mainstream media or whatever, I, I do find, I think you're one of the, one of the better, one of the best ones, at least that I know of. Um, and so thank you for that. Also, um, I know that this was a lot of work because it's going to the book, the amount of people that you mentioned and stories you tell. So take a victory lap <laughs> one more time about just how much work it was, was, because if you don't stop, if you, when you read the book, if you don't stop and think about it, you might just pass through this. Oh, this is easy. Like, no, no, no. You went through all kinds of links to write this book. Yeah, it was really, really hard. I had three near nervous breakdowns along the way. I had an ambitious deadline I set out for myself, uh, finally, and I wanted to get it out. Um, I had to dig into history, get people to talk. So, yeah, thank you for appreciating that. And, um, yeah, to your earlier point, some of my best sources are people that started off their relationship with uh, some constructive criticism of, of something I've written. And, I, and I'd like to be intellectually honest. So if someone's got, and I invite your audience as well, feel free to, to reach out something I've written or something a colleague has written or something, someone else in the media, feel free to kind of reach out. And I'd love to hear the perspective because I, I need to hear everyone's perspective and um, look at myself in the mirror and I don't get it right all the time. My colleagues don't either. You'd be surprised if, you know, a polite email to a reporter, be it me or someone,